I don't know if you have uh, lived long enough to realize this or not, but there is a, a, a truth about our walk to God that is really kind of amazing, and that is that God will provide just what you need, just when you need it. You ever experienced that? You ever, you ever wonder if your timing was a little better than God's? You know, a little bit sooner, God, maybe if that hardship would have passed a little more quickly, I'd have been, I'd have tithed more today. You know, no, you don't say that. But, you know, sometimes we try to bargain with God. You know, hey, listen, yeah, I know you're perfect and all, but I think my ideas were pretty good too. I've heard one, one preacher who said it, that God is always the last person to show up just on time. You like that? He's always the last person to show up just in time. And today, we're going to see something, I think, how God does that for his disciples. If you've been with us for any period of time, you know that we've been traveling through the, the gospel of Matthew. And as we have journeyed through the, um, the gospel story, we've seen some pretty amazing things. Uh, Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus proceeds to say, I will build my church. And the way I'm going to build it, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Peter says, no way, no way. You're the Messiah, and Messiahship and suffering and death don't go together. And Jesus has to put Simon Peter in his place and say, get behind me. Satan, you're supposed to be following, not leading. And I have to obey the Father's will, and I'm going to go. I must go and die. How do you think you would have felt if you were a disciple who's given up everything to follow Jesus? And you're thinking glory and thrones and crown. And Jesus is saying, Humility, misunderstanding, um, mistreatment, and death. I mean, the disciples got to be depressed. Jesus has just told them some really heavy stuff. Peter's been rebuked. They've been challenged to bear their own cross. Heavy stuff. Yet today, as we turn the, turn the, the page to a new chapter, just six days after this episode that we looked at last week, Jesus does something to cheer his disciples. He gives his disciples a behind-the-scenes peek at what his glory truly is. They will see what no human being has seen, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the thing that's interesting is that Peter, while being one of these people to have this behind-the-scenes glimpse, he never forgets it. As an old man, when he writes the uh, letter of 2 Peter, he says this, talking about how Scripture comes about. Scripture didn't just fall out of the sky. An angel didn't come down and deliver it. God spoke through his people. And here's what Peter says. He says, we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths when, you, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from, glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Beautiful way to talk about the return of Christ. And Peter never got over what we're about to look at in Matthew chapter 17. And so if you have your copy of the scriptures, we'll be in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. There's a, a listening outline in your bulletin. That is page 694 in your um, 
Pew Bibles, if you need that right in front of you, page 694. And we'll begin with verses 1 through 4. And in verses 1 through 4, we'll see uh, really a relatively simple truth, that Jesus is traveling with his disciples to a divine appointment. Look at, what the, look at what God's word says with me. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and his brother John, and he led them up on a high mountain just by themselves. And Jesus was transformed in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became as white as the light. And then suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's a lot of action in four verses. The story is really quick. They're on their way from Caesarea Philippi, where Peter has made his confession of who Christ is, and they're on their way to Jerusalem. And they happen to stop for a little mountainside retreat. And now what they think, what does Jesus do when he usually goes to the mountain? It's a little prayer conference. They think, okay, we must have gone far enough. Jesus wants to stop and he wants to pray. Jesus knows he's got a little unveiling ceremony for these disciples, for his, his, inner, his inner circle. They're thinking one thing. Jesus is about to blow their socks off. He's like, come on, let's go away. It's kind of like Christmas morning for parents, you know, and you're just waiting to see how you surprise your kid, except like a zillion times more glorious. Jesus is about to surprise his followers. Well, what happens? It's a glorious event. It says that Jesus is suddenly transformed, metamorphosized is the Greek word, metamorpho. You have Jesus, you have toga and sandal Jesus, one second, and then you have bright, shiny Jesus, like the second second. It's like, boom, something has happened. And it says that he is displayed gloriously. Now, um, some of you, we've got a little bit younger crowd here. Um, If we were uh, an older congregation in a really revivalistic uh, kind of church background, when you get excited and you agree with something that's being preached, you might say, Thank you. Wow, Ed. You know what you might say? Glory. Glory. Like it's a synonym for amen. What is glory? Because what this all is about is Jesus displaying his glory. Well, how does Jesus display his glory here? He shines. He's bright. There's the idea of purity, of holiness, of authority, of power. All of this stuff is communicated there. Glory, power, purity, authority. It says his face shone like the sun. His clothes were the brightest white. It was an incredible sight. They saw the blazing glory of God and they didn't die. It's an amazing thing. You have to think about for the disciples. They had just heard. We don't know what has happened in the last six days, but we know six days ago, the last thing the scripture told us was, um, yeah, I'm going to die. And if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has just told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and you need to come with me. Yes, sir. And he goes from this heavy message of this suffering and dying Messiah to now this picture of glorious, all-powerful, sovereign, awesome God. You think your emotions would be on a little bit of a roller coaster if, if you were walking with Jesus at this time. And I think it's beautiful because Jesus is wanting us to understand the full nature of the gospel, okay? I I think a lot of times we think gospel and we think heaven, 
streets of gold, pearly gates. That's great. And listen, that's true. But you know how you get there? The narrow path. The heavy cross. And when we start wanting glory more than we want the gospel, that's a problem. Because the gospel in its full-orbed beauty is the humble and crucified Messiah. And then the glorious crown in the streets of gold, it's full-orbed, crucified in humility, resurrected with power. And so we see what happens, but as their eyes kind of start to adjust to, you know, the Q-beam of God's holiness, what else do they see? There's more. Now, all of a sudden, like something out of Star Trek, there's more people on the mountain that were not there before the light started shining. There's now other people, not just people, they're glorious people. It's Moses and Elijah. Now, in the first service, I don't think they quite, they quite got this. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They didn't have a church directory. They didn't have, they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram. We don't even know what Jesus looked like. You know, we, we tend to picture him as a long-haired hippie and kind of white, but he wasn't. He was a Jew. He was Middle Eastern. He probably would be on the Homeland Security list if he came through an airport in the United States. But we have this image of Jesus. He's always got a lamb around his shoulders. How did they know what Moses and Elijah look like? But the disciples get it. They know. They open up their eyes. Their eyes adjust. And now it's Moses and Elijah. And we have to ask, why them? All kinds of people could have showed up. It could have been Adam. It could have been Abraham. It could have been David. It could have been Solomon, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Why Moses and Elijah? Now, I'm not going to go through all of the scripture that we've got there. You can kind of see there's two uh, passages, Exodus 33 and 34 and 1 Kings 19. I'm going to zoom through this here a little bit. But I think there's, there's really a couple, a couple good reasons why it's them. And it has to do with the glory of God. Both Moses and Elijah... Um, had, had interaction with God's glory in a very specific way. Moses specifically reflected the divine glory. You'll remember the story on another mountain, not this unnamed mountain, on another mountain called Sinai, God went up and, uh, Moses went up and spent time with God. Moses is in this relationship with God, and he says, God, show me your glory. And, and God says, um, I can't do that, Moses, because you will die. And he says, but here, here's the deal. There's this place up next to me, and there's a little cleft in the rock. Why don't you come up here into the cleft in the rock, and I'm going to pass over. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my hand on you while I go by. He says, you can't see my face and live, but when I get past you, I'll remove my hand, and you can see my back. And it says, God came down in a cloud, and that Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights uh, with God, and the end result of that was... Um, God telling Moses what the Ten Commandments were. And Moses comes down the mountain after that period of 40 days and 40 nights is over, and he comes to the, um, the Hebrew nation that's camped around the bottom of the mountain, and it says they freak out when Moses comes back because he's like glowing in the dark from having spent time with God. I don't know how you sleep like that, you know? Turn the light out. I can't. Uh, he's just, he's, he's shining, and this is nothing to do with Moses' nature. This is a residual effect of him spending time with God. You know, it's interesting. Um, the disciples didn't glow like Moses did. But it says when they were preaching, the Jews called him and said, you may not preach in this name again. You know, after all, you're uneducated fishermen. But it says that what was known about the disciples was that, that, was that they had spent time with Jesus. Now, don't, don't, you wish it, don't you wish that people would reflect God's glory like Moses did? It'd make you... 
it lets you know who's really walking the way that they need to. So how bright would our church be this morning if, if God still worked this way? If you've spent time with God, you come in and it's not like you've been fake baking at a tannin salon, but there's a glow to you. There's a sheen to you. There's something that not just physically, there's something that is different about you. And that's what happened to Moses. Moses didn't have this. He just reflected the glory that he spent time with as he was with God. Elijah, in the same, thing, in the same way, experienced the divine glory. Elijah was known as the, the thick-chested defender and proclaimer of God. Uh, on another mountain, Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah was in a contest with prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, and Elijah could call down fire from heaven to burn up his sacrifice in contrast to the pagan worship of the Baal worshipers, and, and the Baal worshipers were destroyed. Elijah wanted so much to turn Israel's heart back to obedience to the covenant, but after this great victory of defeating 450 false prophets, one woman challenges him and says, I'm going to make you like my prophets, who you did to my prophets, uh, before the sun sets. And what's Elijah do? He doesn't go, you know what? God took care of 450 prophets. He can take care of one wicked woman. No, his knees start shaking and he takes off and he runs. And it says he goes to Mount Horeb and he hides in a cave in 1 Kings 19. And it says that God is like, Elijah, what are you doing? I have just protected you. And trust me, if I can handle 450 prophets, I can handle one woman. I know it's not in the Bible, but they say, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Um, that's not biblical. There might be some truth to it, but it's not, not in the Bible. He's saying, listen, I can, I can handle the fury of this woman. And he says, Elijah, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get out of the cave. I need you to go stand on the mountain. I'm coming down. I'm going to talk to you. And he says, all of a sudden, there's this huge wind. It's like a tornado. It says that the cliff faces break because of the force of this wind. But God was not in the wind. It says, then there was an earthquake. And all of the ground began to shake, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a roaring fire. You got to go, what in the world is happening? Wind and then earthquake and then fire. And God's not in the fire. And then there was a still, small voice. Elijah knew that was God calling him. He says he wrapped his face, put his mantle around his head, and he went out, and God said, Elijah, same question. What are you doing here? Both Moses and Elijah reflected and experienced the glory of God. The reason I think these two are with Jesus on the mountain is for something I think we need to learn, is that there's a friendship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moses was who? The giver of the law. First five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses. Elijah is a prophet of the law. So you have the law and the prophets coming to this mountain to meet with Jesus to show that there's continuity and friendship. There are some people, uh, Marcion, not Marcy, Marcion was a uh, second century heretic who said that the God of the Old Testament is an evil, nasty, mean, vengeful God. And the God of the New Testament is good and gracious. We can't do that. It's, they're both Yahweh unfolding revelation, some different things that happen along the way, but it's one cohesive book. And so we can't draw a division between the Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus, who was proclaimed to be a lawbreaker by religious leaders, has the man who has written the law and the man who has defended the law come to have a conference with him. It's an amazing thing. He's showing this beautiful affirmation by these Old Testament heroes as they come to meet with Jesus. So Jesus is gloriously transformed. He has these amazingly glorious guests. What are they doing? What is it that happens when they get there? It says they are talking. Wouldn't you love to know what they talked about? 
you know, the disciples are kind of like, all right, there's only three of us, there's three of them. Are we allowed in on the conversation? Matthew doesn't tell us anything about what they say, but Luke records the same story and he gives just a little bit more detail. So in Luke 9, verses 30 and 31, uh, God's word says uh, exactly what they were talking about. Take a peek uh, on the screen. You'll see it here in just a second. It says that they were talking, essentially, about his death. It says that when, they, when Moses and Elijah appeared, they were talking about his death. Now, the thing that's interesting is the, um, the word for death in Greek, it's an interesting word, is exodus. Very interesting that Moses is here, you know, the hero of the first exodus. Jesus is about to accomplish our exodus from sin and death. And they were talking about his departure, his exodus, his death. Here's the thing that's just so crazy is up to this point, it's been like, it's been the shiny Jesus. All the attention is on him. Moses and Elijah come to talk to him and Peter just can't stand it anymore. He's got to get his two cents in. You know, and you sit there and you go, Peter, listen, man, six days ago, you told Jesus he can't do what he said he came to do and he like rebuked you. So you know, like Peter, every morning for his devotions, he's like, God, please give me self-control. God, please, please give me self-control. Help me not to say something dumb. Help, uh, just, oh, bless my heart, you know, whatever it is that he, he's wanting to do. And so he can't, he can't zip it. And so he does pretty good here. I mean, like if you stop and examine, he starts off, he says, Lord. Okay, good, good, Peter. Lord, that's a good way to start. It is good for us to be here. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Of course, this is great for us to be here. And then he says, if it's your will, hey, I'm tracking. He's doing good. I will build three tents. One for Elijah, one for Moses, one for you. Fail. Jesus is no different than Moses and Elijah. They're all equal. At this point, Peter has done stuck his foot in his mouth again. And so Peter and his disciples, for our second point, they have to learn from a divine interruption. Now, is it, is, it, is it a godly thing to interrupt somebody? No, not all the time. But if your kid is talking and he's reaching for the stove, then by all means, interrupt him. And when Peter starts espousing a theology that doesn't see Jesus as unique, God the Father says, all right, you thought the special effects show was cool up to this point? I'm coming to the party. Look at what happens in verses 5 through 8. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, and I take delight in him. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell face down and were terrified. But Jesus came up and touched them and said, Get up and don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except him, Jesus, alone. Peter has a reputation as a talker. And his little speech now requires some clarification. So God the Father sovereignly makes it his right to interrupt him. Because he knows if he waits for Peter to get done, it may take a while. So while Peter is still speaking to this already glorious event, something even more uh, splendid happens. It says that God himself, God the Father, appears in a bright cloud. Now this shouldn't surprise us if we know anything about the Bible. 
Because when uh, Moses was leading the children of Israel, it says that God came down in a pillar of fire to guide them by night. He came down in a cloud to guide them by day. When the tabernacle was dedicated, it says God came down in a cloud and he manifested his glory there. But we know that it's God in the cloud. Why? Because the vo- there's a voice that comes from the cloud and we can tell from what he says. So in addition to all of Peter's blathering, God with a great economy of words, he doesn't waste words, my son, I delight in him. Shut up and listen. Be quiet. Stop talking. Peter, you're just confusing everybody. Stop it. And when we get to this idea of listening to Jesus, listening is a very important Bible word. And it's a very important parenting word. If you are a parent, you have... You have told your kids all kinds of stuff. So there are things that you tell them to do, things that you tell them not to do. And then if they do the opposite of what you have instructed them, if you are a good parent, um, you will ask them, did you hear what I said? To which no kid on the face of the planet says, well, no, beloved mother, I did not. Because um, something is wrong with my auditory canal, and so whatever vocal reverberations were coming from your mouth... They did not enter my ear canal and translate into whatever needed to happen and go through the membranes to communicate to my brain the actual intelligible words you were trying to communicate. So no, I did not hear you. Nobody says that. Because here's the thing. When we talk about listening, the Bible defines listening as obeying. And our kids hear us all the time. But they don't necessarily listen to us. Because in the Bible, listening implies obeying. And what God says here, he says, guys, listen. Peter, good try. We don't need to build a tent for Moses and Elijah. They're not staying. They're here to talk to Jesus. Yes, it's cool that there's friendship between the Old and New Testament, but God, by his proclamation, is showing that Jesus is unique. How is Jesus unique? Well, did you see what God says? God says, this is my Beloved son, in whom I am delighted. Is there ever a human being on the face of the planet that God says this to? No. Not in the same way he says it about his son. And here's how Jesus' uniqueness comes home to us in a very simple truth. Jesus fully pleases the Father because he most clearly reveals God. Friends, that's what this entire episode is about. The cloud... The voice, the light, the guests, all of this is showing the uniqueness, uh, the, the significance, the glory of who Jesus is. Any other person that we look at, let's take Moses, for instance. Moses is the great deliverer of the Hebrew nation. But you know what happened to Moses? Moses did not get to go into the promised land. Did you know this? Moses didn't follow God's instructions. God said, I want you to go do this, speak to the rock, do this, and water will come from it. And Moses perhaps exasperated from leading such a stubborn people, hit the rock twice. Kind of a minor incident of disobedience. And yet because of that disobedience, God says, you know what? If you're not going to follow me, you're not going to be the leader to take him into the promised land. So go up on the mountain. I'll let you peek into it, but you ain't going because you're going to die. Moses disobeyed right on the cusp of getting into the promised land. When we look at Moses, we can learn things about God. 
But he's a man with clay feet just like us. Elijah, you go, man, Elijah's a manly man. He, he was like the original survival show, you know. He like goes and lives in a cave and wears like animal skins and eats bugs, you know. So like that would be an awesome, you know, survivor Old Testament style, you know, whatever. And, and yet, what does he do? He chickens out when he gets threatened. He believes God for the big thing, but he can't believe God for the small thing. And so when we see Elijah, we see things that are true about God that he lives out but he does not clearly reveal God the way that Jesus does. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. And we see a man who, unlike Moses or Elijah, obeys God perfectly and fully, even to the point of death on the cross. So God has to do something. God has to interrupt Peter to correct him a little bit and to tell him to listen to Jesus. If we had a little mountain retreat at Northside Baptist Church, would that be God's same message to us? Does he need to interrupt you and say, man, you're listening to all kinds of junk. Stop it and listen to my beloved son, the one who does my will, the one who will teach you the truth. Listen to him. Disciples, if Jesus says he's got to go to Jerusalem and he's got to die, believe him. If he says he's going to get up from the grave three days after, then take it to the bank. And if he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, then you should do it. Listen to my son. See the full-orbed beauty of the gospel again. Because what happens is this voice comes from heaven. And I don't know if it sounded like James Earl Jones. I think it kind of sort of did. Just this awesome, booming voice. And it says the disciples fall down with their face in the mud when it happens, but the voice fades, the cloud evaporates, and as the disciples open their eyes, what do they see? Jesus. Is it shiny Jesus? It's Jesus, again, God in the flesh. And what has happened is the disembodied voice from heaven has terrified the mess out of them. But the God in the flesh has been gracious and gentle to them. Isn't, isn't that the God that we worship? You know, we say, oh God, we want to see you. Be real careful about asking that. I don't, that doesn't really work out well for people, usually. You know, it, that's, there has to be some reverence and some fear. Here's what I love about this. God, is, I mean, Jesus is kind of just taken off his, his outer clothes. He's taken, off, he's taken off his jacket. And he's let us see who he truly, really is. He is... Uh, not just this humble little kid born in a stable, you know, whose birthright is kind of, you know, his, frankly, is he a bastard? You know, what, what's his lineage? You know, there's some question. Is his, his dad says he's not his dad, so what's the story with Mary? Kind of living, kind of profligate? What, what's the story? The, you know, hey, this guy can't really be the Messiah because we know who his mom and dad is. There's all these questions. Jesus now pulls his jacket off and shows the full glory of who he has always been, the glory that he had before his incarnation. He has power. He has authority. He has glory. He puts his jacket back on, and what's the very first thing that he does after this incredible display of his power and his might? He comes down to a bunch of quaking disciples with their face in the dirt, and he says, let me help you out. Don't be afraid. Yes, in one sense, God is someone to be very afraid of. But God in the flesh, 
Emmanuel, God with us, is for us. And the very first thing that he does with this sovereign, awesome, incredible majesty is help weak and faint-hearted followers. Man, that's good. That's awesome. They conclude their mountaintop experience by confirming the divine plan. And what happens in verses 9 through 13, the disciples have to ask some clarifying questions to make sure that they get everything just right. Look at verses 9 through 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. If his closest followers didn't get his suffering and dying stuff right, how would the people that they tell it to get it? Plus, Jesus knows his claims to divinity and to messiahship, the greatest proof of that will be his resurrection. So he says, hey, disciples, I know this was really, really awesome, but don't tell anybody until I'm raised from the dead. So the disciples, verse 10, questioned him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They just saw Elijah, and they're like, Jesus, you were first, Elijah was second, so uh, something's not right. Jesus replies in verse 11, Elijah is coming, and he will restore everything. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him, and in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Elijah's appearance on the mountain has really kind of caused some confusion for them. And they're going, uh, we need to figure out some things here. How can you be the Messiah if Elijah has not come back yet? And Jesus agrees with them. He says, you know what? You're right. Let me just add one little fact. Elijah has already come, and everybody missed it. So what Jesus is telling them is that the plan of his suffering and rising, the plan is on because the chronology is right. Elijah has already come back. He was just not a reincarnation. When you go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 17, when the angel appears to Zacharias and predicts the birth of John the Baptist, listen to what it says about him. It says, he, John, will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. So while they were expecting like a physical resurrection or reincarnation of the person of Elijah, that's not what God promised. God promised an Elijah-like influence. And it's not just Luke that says this. From the very lips of Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says, hey, listen, if you can accept this, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And John is the Elijah who is to come. The scriptures are right. They just didn't live up to all the jots and tittles of current expectations. It was not reincarnated Elijah. It was power and spirit of Elijah. But just as the world did not receive John as he was intended, but misunderstood him and killed him, Jesus says, listen, let me be real clear. Elijah has come. And they didn't get it. And they did to him whatever they wanted to, which ultimately was his beheading. And Jesus says, just so will they do to the Son of Man. What's he saying? John's reception is Jesus' expectation. Except he, 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 he adds that he's going to suffer at their hands. And friends, here's where the glory of all of this kind of comes to a head. 
you, you try to think if like, you know, one of these big movie guys turned this into a movie. I mean, wow, the special effects would be incredible. The glory is not in the special effects. The glory is not in the fact that Moses and Elijah came back. The glory is not even in God coming down in the cloud and speaking in the voice from heaven. I mean, those are kind of fantastic things. The glory is in something much more simple. The glory is in the fact that Jesus, despite all of the glory, authority, and power that he has, is determined to go to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed and he will die a death that he does not deserve to pay a debt that he does not owe so that those who have faith in Christ can have life with God. That's where the glory's at. We crave the signs and the wonders and we, 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 it becomes humdrum for us to hear the gospel story. That God took on flesh to die a death that we deserved. And that he says anyone, anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart can be saved. Friends, that's glorious. That a way is made for you to have a relationship with God that you cannot buy, you cannot manipulate, you can't trade, you can't earn. And the glory is not in the signs and wonders of the movement. It's in the obedience to God fully to the point of death so that those who would place their faith in Christ can have a glorious inheritance that they would never be able to afford. Jesus gets done with the light show. And he says, you know what? You know who I am. And in light of that knowledge, we must go to Jerusalem. We're just like John the Baptist. People who don't believe will do whatever they want to me. And I already know what they're going to do. It's no surprise for me. I will suffer. I will die. And don't tell anyone what you've seen until I get back up again. Because then your message will have an authenticating power to it that will change the world. Don't put the genie in the bottle. Let it out. But just wait until I get back up. And so the challenge for us today is for the gospel to wow us again. Not the special effects of all of this stuff. And it's good stuff. There's good theology. Jesus is God. The connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father. What does that mean for you? It means that God has already given you everything that you need for life and godliness. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's already taken care of your biggest problem that you've got. And that is your sin problem. The question is, how will you live in light of these truths? Will you tell people about the glorious news of this God in the flesh with all power and all might who died for us and rose again? Or will you be quiet because that might be a little uncomfortable for you? Will you make decisions about what you will and will not do in light of the glory of who Jesus is? Or are you going to do pretty much what you want to do? Is Jesus going to be the Lord of your pocketbook or is he just going to be the Lord of your you know, two hours on Sunday morning? Is he going to be the Lord of your entertainment options? Or, you know, hey, that's okay for me. I'm, I'm mature enough to handle watching garbage. The glory of the king is proven by the way his disciples manifest his glory to a watching world. Pray with me, please. God, we pray that you help us to realize that the way that we live out the truth of the gospel confirms or denies the truth that we say that we believe. And so forgive us for ways that we have made your gospel too small. Forgive us for ways that we have... Um, lost the wonder of your incarnation. God in the flesh. And today, through your word, we got a chance to see that. 
to see who you were before your incarnation, clothed with humanity, in some way masked from our eyes. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes of faith to truly see who you are and that that empowers and impacts the way that we live. You are a glorious God and you share your glory with us by offering us eternal life to spend eternity with God. God, may you make us bold by your spirit to grasp it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.